Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 85 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today you are joining us for another one of our very popular episode formats. We're talking about three micronutrients, what they do, where we can find them, and what happens when we become deficient in them. And today's topic includes some abstract ones and maybe some more common. We're kicking off with asparginine, followed by CoQ10 and zinc. Hey, Becky, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you, Allie? I'm, I'm all the things we're doing. We just kicked off our uh, virtual keto program and have been delighted with the influx of participants and engagement and results we're already seeing one week in. So I know you and I have been like moderating questions every single day. <laughs> they always <Yeah>. start, <laughs> you know, real hungry and eager. And then usually as we get our flow and our rhythm about week six on, we, we, we get to slow down a little bit the pace. <laughs> yes. And then we have KetoCon coming up in just under a month, June 15th to 17th. I'll be coming to Austin to support you through that. Yes. Yes. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, we'll be sure to post a link. It is going to be the biggest, I think, worldwide keto conference that's available. And I will have the honor of speaking on the anti-anxiety diet. I just knocked out four presentations on that already in the month of May. And so looking forward to doing more and sharing the message. And Becky will be there along with my husband, Brady, and her husband, Byron. They'll be the silly guys wearing the food as medicine t-shirts, <laughs> trying to speak intelligently about our supplement line. <laughs> so be sure to come and say hi and come get free hugs and um, challenge the boys with some tough questions. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Byron will love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll have them memorize the top three bullets of everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back in episode 72, we get into why micronutrients can become deficient. So I think we just skip over that part um, and just go into the meat of our episode today. Um, but I do wanna talk a little bit about micronutrient testing, how the type of test matters, uh, because a lot of patients will come to us and be like, oh, I had my B12 run, it's fine. Or like I had my vitamin D run, it's on the low side, but it's fine. Uh, but right. there's a difference in the type of test that you run. Yes. So when I use a micronutrient assessment in clinic, I have found best results from SpectraCell, which is a company that uses a process called white blood cell proliferation. Um, so that's a fancy word, but as, it, as you can kind of make out from the breakdown of the word proliferate, uh, what it's actually looking at is the cellular viability or how long your lymphocytes can grow and maintain viability or life before they die, essentially. And so it's looking at a functional intracellular status of the micronutrients involved in cell metabolism. And um, this is a much more 
functional approach, meaning that we're able to see on a cellular life cycle how the nutrients are available for maintaining lifespan or essentially for fueling the cellular function. So like Becky said, most blood tests are looking at serum. Um, and serum is just your blood, uh, total blood flow. And it can be looking at more of a snapshot of what's passing through the body, maybe not what's actually available on a cellular level. And also it's going to have less of a life cycle approach. So it's not looking at a longer term of storage capacity. Uh, so we're looking at somewhere between a one to three month period. So based on if you ate a bunch of zinc rich foods, for instance, the day before you took a blood test, you may have a different outcome on a white blood cell proliferation panel like SpectraCell would give you more of a longevity assessment versus just a snapshot or a blip in the radar, which may be elevated. And then something else to note, uh, like Becky mentioned, is often we can have things that are high in the serum but aren't able to be carried into our cells. So this can be based on genetic SNPs. Um, we've talked about this in past episodes. And for instance, there's vitamin D receptor genetic influences where some individuals might have a reasonable vitamin D on a serum level. However, when we look at a SpectraCell report, their vitamin D is not getting into the cells. So they might have a VDR influence. Um, same thing with B12. There are a lot of different B12 related SNPs or genetic mutations. And so the blood may have high B12 passing through it, but it may not be getting intracellular to be used. So that person might still be dealing with neuropathy or other symptoms of B12 deficiency like chronic fatigue syndrome. And yet the blood test from a standard doctor's office with the serum might say, oh, this is too high. You should lower your supplemental support. So I many just things. had that happen with the client. I'm like, yeah. well, based on your symptoms, we got to run this other test. And, and also, you know, with things like B12, we know that it's a water-soluble B vitamin, which has a very low upper toxicity limit. So really not concerned when a serum test shows that to be elevated. Um, and that's why it's safe even to be used in the form of an intramuscular injection or IV and things like that as well. Yeah. So, so cool the way that this test is done. And we'll link to the SpectraCell micronutrient panel that we run in the show notes so you guys can take a peek at that. That's really what we recommend kind of as a baseline of wellness if you're looking just for a starting point and maybe we're not dealing with too much on the hormone side or food sensitivities and we just want kind of an overall wellness check. I love that lab for that reason. Absolutely. I think it's a fantastic thing to assess, especially if you're going through a dynamic change, like women that are postpartum had a baby and are looking to kind of recalibrate based on everything that they gave off to their little one or people that are looking at athletic performance enhancement or just maintaining optimal function. This is like our annual wellness assessment. And I did misspeak. I apologize. The lymphocyte life cycle is more of a four to six month capacity. So the lifespan is going to be a little bit even more longer than I mentioned with the one to three. And um, it really is a good assessment to understand underlying mechanisms because often we can see that 
a nutrient deficiency can be used like upstream medicine, where when we're going through the symptom trends from the results we see, the individual may be experiencing two to three, maybe four of the deficiencies, but we might be preceding the influence of the other five to six deficiencies. Like maybe we beat them to the hair loss or the insomnia, but they are starting to see that dysglycemia or blood sugar imbalance because they were diagnosed with prediabetes. And maybe they're starting to see the fatigue and the muscle wasting, but using that supplemental support and the food as medicine interventions can get on top of things and resolve the symptoms they're experiencing while preventing those that have yet to show their head. Awesome. So again, I'll link to that in the show notes so you can take a peek and let's just jump in and talk about this first nutrient. So maybe a lesser known um, asparagine. Um, Although this recently came up with the study that linked asparagus or this amino acid asparagine to cancer. And we got a lot of emails about like, should I still be eating asparagus? Yes. So asparginine or asparagine is a amino acid derived compound. So a protein building block essentially. And interestingly enough, um, I always saw in research trends and when I was trained in how to interpret the micronutrient test, asparginine was generally speaking a trend of individuals that when deficient had history of cancer. Yes. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, it, it was really interesting when this study came out and Um, It was looking at the expression of asparginine on a, uh, it was an isolated amino acid that was used in the study. And um, it was also looking at a influence on particular metastatic progression. And so when we're giving an amino acid or a protein building block, they can be anabolic, right? So they can be building and they they can maintain growth. Um, and when we look at L-asparginine, actually, this is one that in clinic I never use as an isolated amino acid. It's one that I only use as food. And I tend to see deficiency trends looking more at protein malnourishment. Um, so this study in particular was looking at tumorigenic activity in L-asparginase um, activated enzyme form of the supplement. Yes. And it was also a mouse study. So I think we'll get into that. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about kind of what was wrong with the assumption that was made and, and how the headlines were really quite inflammatory based on the actual scientific paper. And this happens a lot as we've talked about in prior episodes. Um, yeah. Is this a similar situation? We talked about glutamine for this kind of same reason back in episode 72. Is it kind of a similar situation, would you say? Right. When isolated in a mega dose that could not be consumed on a food level, um, you know, and in, in mice, which have different metabolic biochemical pathways than us, and in a mouse that actively has cancer and provoking it as a mitogen, essentially, um, so many factors could be taken into account. Um, and uh, the big thing that we like to look at when we're talking about the expression with food, I'm not sure if it's this funding to try to get individuals to feel fearful of food as medicine interventions or to feel less empowered by healing their bodies with food or confused and um, kind of dumbing them down into this victim mentality of, oh, I just need to listen to what my doctor says. Um, Because it did, it came out in, in the headlines that asparagus causes cancer. 
um, <laughs> pretty wild. And there were actually oncologists from my connection from patients that oncologists were actually telling their patients to reduce their amount of asparagus consumption. And one of the headlines was laying off asparagus may help beat cancer. Um, and so the first thing to determine is the amount of L-asparginase, which is an activated enzyme form of asparginine, um, first off, was in a higher amount than could be physically possibly consumed in asparagus. Also taking it in an isolated form like that, you're losing a lot of the fibrous compounds like the hemicelluloses and the um, binding capacity to help to drive bioflow, which is going to play an influence in a change of enzyme activity. Um, and again, stimulated in those that are currently affected and the fact that it is an anabolic builder as a protein metabolite, um, definitely could be seen. And in fact, this kind of goes down to my approach of, yes, I think that, that in any way, shape or form, we could prove that kale causes cancer if we tried hard enough to modify the environment um, to do so. Sure. And isolated a particular nutrient, which again, when you talk about using food as medicine, that's the beautiful thing is that we're using these nutrients in synergy with other nutrients and, you know, a certain delivery and there's fiber included and right. all of that good stuff. So it's completely different. Right. And asparagus in its whole food form also does help with the detox process. It has a lot of diuretic effect. So it helps with reducing excessive fluid. Um, this also helps with things like lymphedema, which is often seen with cancer patients. So it is one that it's so funny because Stella, it, she's kind of in a food jag. Uh, she was definitely, especially around that time. And she was eating asparagus like four days a week, at least as her vegetable of choice. And um, once I read the study and I looked at the dosage that was used and the isolated compound, I had zero anxiety or thought process of shifting up my daughter's vegetable intake. Um, of course, we tried to focus on variety and we try to get her to, to get back into things like broccoli and cauliflower and such, but I by no means had any fear that I was going to be provoking cancer in her system. Yes. So basically, guys, that was an inflammatory headline and I wouldn't worry about it. If anything, what we're going to get into next in terms of uh, form and function of asparagine should put your mind at ease. Um, so let's talk about asparagine's function in the body, what it does for us, and some of the processes it's involved in. Sure. So it is, uh, like I said, an amino acid derived compound. It's uh, synthesized from aspartate and uh, glutamine. And it can be converted into uh, aspartate, asparginine itself can be converted into aspartate as well. And this is a precursor for regulating DNA, RNA, and ATP. So it provides energy and cellular replication, which again, if given in an isolated high dose form, yes, <laughs> two cells that are rapidly reproducing could potentially provoke that, that metastatic or uh, tumorigenic activity um, if, if used as a stimulator. But asparginine in a whole food form, and even as a supplemental form in otherwise healthy individuals, um, is on high demand when we have higher cellular function. So people that have uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or any issues with their mitochondria or energy factories of their cells, like fibromyalgia as an example, would be in higher need of the asparginine. And we often see 
and its role with ATP or energy production, that it also can be used in a, as a component in the urea cycle, which helps to remove excessive ammonia to prevent toxic overload. So for individuals that have elevated ammonia scores um, or are at higher uh, risk for dementia, cognitive decline, because ammonia can drive brain inflammation and um, cognitive decline, this can be a really fantastic tool to remove that ammonia buildup. And we tend to see ammonia buildup in those that are over-exercisers or are putting out a lot of activity on a sports or athletic environment. So a couple different groups of people that asparginine supplementation should be considered with um, or absolutely ensuring that we assess if functionally deficient. The first would be chronic fatigue, as I mentioned. So looking at the influence of its ability to make energy in the body, um, it also plays a role in gluconeogenesis um, and especially in the glycogen influence in the muscle. Um, so when we're looking at the ability of regulating blood sugar levels and preventing blood sugar drops um, and regulating that liver production. Asparginine plays a huge piece of that puzzle. We also see which kind of trends with fatigue, hypothyroidism or low thyroid because asparginine serves as a component of the structure of our TSH or our thyroid stimulating hormone. And this can, of course, help to drive output of the T4 from the thyroid gland, which then in an ideal environment of minerals is going to be converted into that active T3. Um, I mentioned with sports and athleticism how this is a big piece of the puzzle for sure because it does help the muscle capacity to spare that glycogen. We also see that it can prevent physical exhaustion. So like the marathon runners, the triathletes, asparginine is a big component. Um, and we do see that intensive training can be a big driver of deficiency. And that also deems why with cancer treatment and cancer care, we tend to see cachexia or some level of wasting per se, where we get um, breakdown of our metabolic tissue in treatment of cancer. And that's where actually asparginine repletion can be so important in a whole food form when we are active treating with cancer. Uh, and then weight management, of course, as well. So if it plays a role with blood sugar regulation, it can actually increase insulin sensitivity so that you don't have to release as much insulin. Remember, insulin itself is an inflammatory anabolic hormone that drives body fat. So asparginine optimization is going to help with body fat burn, blood sugar regulation, and then that consistent energy metabolism. Awesome. And then what about just general symptoms of deficiency, maybe not included within the conditions that we just talked about or the, um, the states that we just talked about? Sure. So we can also see confusion and headaches that would tie into typically that ammonia buildup in the body. We can see mental health implications like depression and even irritability or short fuse. And then beyond autoimmune world of cancer, uh, again, based on deficiency, we can also see immune dysfunction in a whole world of autoimmune-related diseases, um, also seeing increased risk for allergies and infections. Awesome. Well, not, not awesome to have allergies and infections, but right. <laughs> so many uh, symptoms and conditions that can be linked to just this one deficiency. Mm -hmm. 
So let's get into best food sources. I know we mentioned not wanting to do this one as an isolated supplement. So what are your go-tos in terms of food other than obviously asparagus would be yes. a good one. So asparagus is a good one. Um, and it's the highest in that amino acid, but in the most bioavailable form and in a good balanced amino acid distribution would be grass-fed whey. So I would, I'm a huge proponent of using grass-fed whey in uh, especially cancer care. So those that are getting active cancer treatment um, or fighting against cancer or a victor um, in remission from cancer, all of these individuals would be really good fits for the grass-fed whey protein. And our naturally nourished grass-fed whey protein is unique in the sense that it is low heat processed. So it retains things like glutathione, which is that granddaddy antioxidant that supports the liver. It also has active immunoglobulins, which are going to help to support immunological function, that surveillance system activity of the body, which will actually increase your natural killer cells upon detection of tumor activity. So, and then of course, Asparginine is pretty present in the grass-fed way as well. So that's going to help to maintain lean body mass and prevent muscle wasting. Uh, that also is going to help to, in turn, support ideal metabolism. So grass-fed way is a great fit for those that are in remission from or dealing with active cancer, as well as athletes. That's my favorite go-to protein powder post-workout recovery because it's going to help to rebuild the mass that was torn, the tissue tears from uh, lifting weights and, and doing resistance type training. And we generally recommend at least 20 grams of protein. Each scoop of my grass-fed whey has 24 grams. And again, in, in that very beneficial therapeutic delivery. So grass-fed whey would be a go-to. And when someone is clinically deficient from this panel, that is what I recommend at least a scoop five times a week to help with repletion. And then asparagus two to three times a week. And then generally speaking, grass-fed whey, excuse me, grass-fed dairy sources are going to be a good source as well, but the whey being the most concentrated. And then even nuts and seeds, and then all protein-containing compounds because it is an amino acid. So you're going to get this in your meats, your poultry, even some, some sources in wild fish. Awesome. And then let's give a couple of snack and meal ideas um, that could support repletion of this nutrient as well. Sure. So anything paired with nut butter and remember that asparginine is on demand with blood sugar, blood sugar imbalances. So if you haven't transitioned to a high fat, low carbohydrate, more keto approach, and you are still doing fruits, you'd want to make sure that if you have a fruit, you always want to pair it with a protein or a healthy fat to blunt that blood sugar spike. So for instance, if you're doing like apple slices, you'd want to have that with a tablespoon of almond butter or something like that. That would be a good snack idea. Um, another thing we could look at is uh, oven-baked Parmesan asparagus, uh, which is just a really simple side. And then our uh, spicy grass-fed beef stir-fry or really any smoothie in our Naturally Nourished cookbook, which incorporates our grass-fed whey protein powder. And on the blog, you can also search under smoothie. We have both keto-friendly and then more of the lower glycemic or higher carb options um, for those that are just in a kind of moderate carb restriction. And those would use fruit versus non in the keto form. The keto form might just use maybe a quarter cup of berries or something. Um, but really any shake or smoothie would be a really great option as well. Awesome. And I'll link to a couple of the recently posted keto shakes on there. I think we put the minty cool up and maybe cinnamon almond yep, shake. Yeah, the cinnamon yeah. almond one, mm -hmm, which is like the most popular and simple. Yes. 
So good. And then of course, you know, the one with almond butter and chocolate is also delicious, but that's an eat fat get skinny. So you have to buy the ebook to get that recipe. Yes. Yes. And then one other one we will add is our prosciutto wrapped asparagus, just because it's so fun. Um, and it's really great for like a dinner party. You can do them in little bundles. So is that going to, is that on the blog, Becky, or is that only in? No, but I, I think it should be. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure we get that up there. Catch my drip. Someone who photographs the blog, um, <laughs> could you please? <laughs> I'll try and get this up before um, this episode goes live. Cool. Perfect. <laughs> so yummy. And yeah, such a good like dinner party or a way to kind of, it's not hidden veggies, but it's a good way to get people who are not that into vegetables <laughs> to eat their vegetables. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so obviously we said we wouldn't give a supplement, but that grass-fed way, um, we might prescribe it one to even two scoops a day, depending on body composition. Yes, for sure. And like I said, at least about five scoops a week, uh, because that if you are seen as clinically deficient, uh, if you just associate with some of these symptoms, you could still rotate the grass-fed way with like a collagen protein or something like that but you're going to get the best in the grass-fed way. Awesome. Okay. I think we've covered that one and then some. So hopefully that really does put folks at ease about the whole asparagus cancer thing Mm -hmm. and and it closed the door on that. Oh, Um, and could we just talk about the asparagus urine thing? Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. So I just think it's funny. Um, Tell us why that happens, Ellie. A lot of people ask me about it. Um, So, you know, we actually all release the volatile compounds. Uh, Volatile just meaning that it's an airborne odor um, based on the metabolism of the sulfur-containing amino acids in asparagus. So again, asparagus is a very detox-supportive food. And um, it has a lot of sulfur-containing compounds, which support that phase two detox process, which is the encapsulation and excretion of toxins. Um, Some people, so everyone releases this compound. It's not a metabolic pathway that only some people have, but only about a quarter of the population apparently have a special gene that allows them to smell the volatile compounds. <laughs> so it's more actually about our reception of smell, how our smell receptors are, um, of whether we have asparagus uh, pee or that, that funny fragrance in the urine about 15 to 30 minutes or the first time you urinate pretty much after consuming asparagus. And that doesn't mean that uh, you have something going on funky on a metabolic pathway. That just means that you have a good sense of smell. I had no idea that it was tied to smell and not tied to the breakdown of the nutrients in the body. So (laughs) I, do you have that sense of smell? I do. I I do too. (laughs) I'm always like, I am so efficient (laughs) when Uh I go to the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Moving on. Awesome. Okay. Now we can move on. Um, Now that we covered the P. I mean, that that is, that's like the burning question. We'll even get client emails like, am I normal? Or Uh when eats beets, like, oh my gosh, my pee is pink or poop is pink. So yeah. (laughs) Um, So what's Yeah. Let's talk about CoQ10. Um, So this is another one, maybe, you know, a little bit more obscure than the zinc that we'll wrap up on. Although if you've taken or um, know about statin drugs, you might be more familiar. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. So this is probably the most common deficiency we're going to see in addition to things like vitamin D with those statin drugs. And it's so scary because CoQ10 is going to play such a role in heart health. 
So let's talk a little bit about that, the connection of statins and CoQ10 depletion first. Sure. So there is a pathway in the body that the statin drug blocks. The, the, the active compound of a statin drug is, is monocolon K, and this is what is derived from red yeast rice. So you, know, you could quote unquote say it is a natural compound, but the way in which that it's isolated uh, blocks a pathway in the body called HM, HMG-CoA reductase. I just a moment. HMG-CoA yes. reductase. This is a pathway in the liver that also produces things like, as you mentioned, uh, vitamin D. Also along that pathway, we play a role in the metabolism of testosterone and even um, activation of things like serotonin and uh, CoQ10 is a really important element that is built along that HMG-CoA reductase pathway, um, as is, of course, the manufacturing of cholesterol. So when we block the production pathway of cholesterol and we lock at that element of HMG-CoA reductase, we're also inhibiting the production of the other aforementioned compounds. So when we're looking at the statin drugs and their role with uh, muscle wasting is a big concern, um, even bone and joint aches and then some people call it statin brain, um, all of this tends to be trended towards the depletion of CoQ10, which is a powerful antioxidant that plays a big role with transporting and producing energy within the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are the energy factories within every cell of your body. Yeah, so super, super important and deficiency can be downright scary and dangerous. Um, let's talk about some of the early symptoms of deficiency, what we might be experiencing in our body if CoQ10 um, is deficient. Sure. So interestingly enough, um, angina or chest pain can be seen with symptoms of deficiency. So kind of counterintuitive, right? If you're taking a drug for cardiovascular health, quote unquote, and um, that in itself is driving deficiency of a nutrient that then can create chest pain um, or arrhythmia or irregular heart uh, rate. Um, so that's definitely a concern with the CoQ10 is that there is direct cardiovascular implications. And then there is going to be other symptoms of deficiency such as fatigue. Um, so both on a overall functional level of fatigue, like just feeling tired and, and then on the level of, like I said, muscle aches and dystrophy. And again, just like I mentioned with the asparginine, if we're having muscle wasting, that means that our metabolism is lowering. And so this can then trend towards obesity or body fat gain. And we've seen as you gain body fat that we get undesired lipid shifts, right? So we start to get a drop in our HDL, which is that protective broom for the vessel. And we know that statin drugs do not have a favorable influence, if any influence on our HDL raising in um, ability. So really pretty much what they do is they block the overall production of cholesterol and often in such a way that we drop too low. And just a sidebar on cholesterol as a reminder that cholesterol in itself has some antioxidant properties and cholesterol is an integral part of every cell membrane in our body. It protects all of what needs to stay inside of the cells from exposure to what is outside of the cellular mass. And in that sense, it also plays a role with communication between cells in our body. And so if we go too low in our cholesterol, 
we tend to get cellular dysfunction throughout the body. And then of course, also using these drugs, we're going to get the dip of the CoQ10, which just adds insult to injury. And then finally, on some levels, one indicator that I look for with patients is uh, gum health concerns. And again, just like with high blood pressure, chest pain, and arrhythmia seen with deficiency of CoQ10, we also see that gingivitis and periodontal health can be another driver of cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular disease because of that connection on an immunological level and inflammatory level to bacterial elements and white blood cell reactions when gum health declines and how that drives direct risk to cardiovascular function. Super interesting, that last connection for sure. Um, so what about food sources before we get into supplement recommendations and repletion, food sources of CoQ10? Sure. So some of the best ones are actually going to be found in, well, protein-containing foods are going to be great, but they're going to be highest concentrated in organs. So whether we're eating liver, um, I love my farmer's market um, does a, uh, I forget the name, I think it called wild, I think it called it bear blend or something. It's not bear, <laughs> um, but the term is just kind of, it's an, or lion's blend, that's what they call it. I'm like, I know it's an animal, but it isn't. Um, they call it lion's blend. And so it's 80% of ground beef from standard cuts all blended together with 20% organ blend. So I the organ, that. yeah, they call it lion's blend. And so the 20% makeup includes heart, kidneys, and liver. So, you know, it, it allows to cut kind of that gaminess that we can get in organ meat. Um, Cause sometimes it can be a little bit metallic tasting, but organs are going to have the most vital compounds as far as antioxidants and CoQ10 is going to be most present there. So that also means like oysters, things that you eat, the entire organelle is going to have a great rich form of CoQ10 as well. And because it is an antioxidant, we want to be mindful of the cooking temperature. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. We don't want to, I remember the last uh, cooking class we did, um, our food is medicine cooking class with uh, Chef Monica Pope. And one of the um, participants called me over and they were like, Ali, look at this piece of, uh, I think it was. I forget what cut of steak, but it was red meat. Steak or was it a meatball? It was definitely a, a red meat something. I can't remember. Yeah, but but they were like, is this okay to eat? <laughs> um, and, and I was, you know, I was like, oh, actually, yes. You, you want to eat things, you know, at a medium or medium rare, especially if you know that your sourcing is good because then you're less worried about bacterial influence. Um, but if you have really clean sourcing, you're doing grass-fed, medium and or even medium rare, not only are you going to get less of the acrylamide and the carcinogenic compounds from overcooking and overcharring meats, but you're also going to retain a lot of the active antioxidants and um, the nutrients that could otherwise be reduced from overcooking. Yes. So as if taste isn't enough, you know, getting things cooked to chef's recommendation, that's usually going to be a medium, even medium rare. Um, but as if taste isn't enough, it's also the preservation of those intact antioxidants. So mm -hmm. cool. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So no more well done. <laughs> Nobody should be ordering steak that way anyway, but. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, you know, if, uh, if it is, a low quality, my go-to, again, generally speaking, is to not eat red meat because right. it's one of the more biological magnifiers. So we're going to get a higher expression of 
the growth hormone of the toxins if they're eating you know, GMO sprayed corn, we're actually going to get more of a toxic influence by eating that red meat that ate that feed uh, versus if we had that GMO corn directly. So that's concerning um, because, you know, we get that accumulation over time of the longevity of the feed from that animal. And especially if you're eating a fattier cut. So better off just going for good sourcing and then yes, doing a, a lower heat process. Awesome. And then I'm thinking recipe wise, since it's like grilling season and then some right now, um, our cowgirl burgers would be a really great option for a ground beef. Um, and they have jalapeno and bacon, but the bacon's already cooked in there. So you don't have to worry about that influence being raw and you could still do the burgers to a nice medium. Those are so, so yummy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then that, um, the mini meatloaves that I recently posted as well. So they're these little muffin tin size meatloaves that have it's probably about the same ratio, like 80% is beef. And then we're adding maybe a little bit more actually um, of liver, but you really can't taste it because you add copious amounts of caramelized onions, you add bacon into the recipe, and then there's the option to top with bacon as well. So if you're not a big liver fan, that might be a good place to start. Um, and you don't have to eat the whole batch at once. You could freeze them and kind of piece them out a little bit too. Absolutely. I think that's awesome too. So yummy. Um, what about a supplement recommendation for CoQ10? What's your go-to? So I really like the Nutrigems um, by Metagenics, and we'll put a link. Um, they're just such a good quality company as far as third-party assessment. And there is still so much to date uh, controversy on ubiquinone versus ubiquinol forms and bioavailability in them. So the... Uh, Ubiquinol is going to be the reduced form, whereas the ubiquinone is the oxidized form. And in theory, ubiquinol was always said to have a higher um, absorption rate, but then the controversy of whether it is reconverted back and, and what have you. Um, what I really like about the Nutrigems is they use a patented emulsification delivery. So they're actually delivering emulsified form of ubiquinone in its bioactive form and have done third-party assessments on bioavailability in the blood following consumption. Um, so that emulsification delivers the active antioxidant into the cells. Um, and it's at a 300 milligram dosage, which is pretty potent. I will say clinically, I've seen after a month and a half of use, individuals that had arrhythmias and palpitations and chest pain to be resolved. So, and, and also uh, seeing with less of the muscular aches. And just as a last kind of call to action, I truly feel that anyone taking a statin drug should absolutely be supplementing with CoQ10, um, at least around 200 milligrams a day. And then if you see to be functionally deficient, this Nutrigem product would be a really good hit um, to help with repletion. And also over time, you may want to visit our uh, heart health episode and also consider doing a lipoprotein particle test and get other biomarkers like your C-reactive protein, your homocysteine to see if statin drugs are indicated as needed for you because chances are you can use natural compounds which then won't drive the deficiency trends and the negative implications on our cardiovascular or metabolic and uh, neuromuscular health. 
Awesome. So I'll link to that episode. I'm not remembering the number. It's <laughs> in my the 40s. Right it's yeah, back, yeah, yeah. Back there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll link to that episode in our show notes as well as the lipoprotein particle size or cardiovascular cardiometabolic panel. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So let's move on to our last one here. Um, and last up, zinc is probably right up there with magnesium, which we talked about in episode 72 in terms of common deficiencies. And I know you've been digging into this one, especially with the connection to anxiety with your new book release. Yes. So there's a lot of studies that look at I call them in my book, mood stabilizing minerals, (laughs) but mineral balance or imbalance of, or dominance of minerals. And there is a ratio, the cop to zinc ratio, the copper, excuse me, to zinc ratio that has a strong trend with anxiety. And uh, zinc has an ability to play on the expression of our GABA. It also plays a role with enhancing our hydrochloric acid or our body's, uh, optimized uh, stomach acid, which plays a role with breaking down and activating amino acids or protein building blocks, which then build neurotransmitters. So when copper is dynamic over zinc, we can see suppression of the GABA influence and then also the amino acid breakdown, driving more amino acid deficiency. And so again, GABA may be an unsung hero compared to serotonin. But GABA is, is even more so the most uh, relaxing and anti-anxiety neurotransmitter. It's called an inhibitory compound, meaning that it helps with mellowing out and neurorelaxation. Um, in fact, we see deficiency in GABA driving things like even tremors and shakiness. And this is what we can see with things like Parkinson's disease. So zinc can help with that expression of GABA as well as optimized breakdown and release of all of the amino acids, which then work hand in hand as building blocks for our brain chemicals, those neurotransmitters. So cool. And yeah, I think this could be a piece of the puzzle of obviously there's a lot of other factors, but the increased anxiety that we're seeing kind of on a population level, a lot more people are deficient for one reason or another in zinc, maybe because we're turning over more often or, or what have you. Um, and then even thinking about the copper, someone brought this up the other day and I was like, ah, oh, I never thought about that. But the copper IUDs that are becoming yep. more and more popular as a form of birth control, it's like we're getting this copper influence. Yep. And, and <laughs> copper in pipes, yes. copper in our water. Yep. That's a big one too. So yes, a lot of houses and cities, of course, use copper piping and um, copper is not reduced out of even filtered water very efficiently. So yeah, all of us are passively getting that. And then, you know, what I realized, which is so funny, kind of, um, (laughs) as someone who really prides himself on being an expert in food as medicine, um, I always recommended pepitas or pumpkin seeds is a great form of zinc. And I was looking at them as I was eating them recently. And I was like, ah, these actually still have more copper than zinc in them. <laughs> you blew my mind with that one. I'm I like, know. There, like, there are a lot of episodes back there, grow. guys. <laughs> yeah. So they are a rich form of zinc. And, and, and it's not a one-to-one ratio. You're, you're definitely still going to be copper dominant, but you want to offset and, and support zinc pathways as much as possible. Um, so they still are a good zinc form. But if you're really looking to overcompensate, you may need to use zinc supplementation. And I think that's a great suggestion, Becky, is for those that are using a copper IUD, they should likely be using 15 to 30 milligrams of zinc 
daily. Yes. And I'll link to our favorite formula of sync if that is something that concerns you. Mm -hmm. And then one more concept on anxiety before we go into other symptoms. Uh, the, there is also a genetic influence of, uh, pylourea. And, um, this is where we get buildup of compounds, um, cryptopyrroles, uh, known as KP, um, compounds, which require zinc and B6 to metabolize them out of the body. Well, these, these KP compounds build up and can cause confusion, acute anxiety, panic attack. Um, so for some individuals that cannot detoxify, we can actually test for a buildup of these cryptopyrroles or KP bodies in their system. And that would be an indicator of pylourea. And that individual would need a mega dose of zinc and B6 to help in that metabolic breakdown and removal and, and kind of chelate and get those compounds out to uh, reset that mood disturbance. It's so cool that that can be influenced by two nutrients in a megadose. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, so let's talk about just the role of zinc in the body, generally speaking, beyond anxiety. So what does it do? Where do we find it? I know it's hundreds of reactions. So let's just highlight a few of the main ones. Yeah. So I think I had anxiety and um, even along that whole world, we even see research with autism and ADHD, because like I said, uh, the zinc can work as a cofactor for many influences on our neurotransmitters. So there's even dopamine synthesis influence. And um, when dopamine levels are off, we can see issues with concentration and focus and more ADHD like tendencies. Um, And then beyond the GABA as well, we can see depression or reduction of serotonin and in turn melatonin, which is built from serotonin. So we can see things like insomnia and, and racing mindset and worry when we have low zinc status. And then, as I mentioned, anxiety, of course, as well. Um, we do see this also translating into autism and looking at beyond toxic metals like mercury in the brain tissue also looking at that zinc to copper ratio in autistic children. And we see that uh, low zinc can actually impair the ability of the body to reduce toxic metals. So having low zinc status, especially on a functional assessment like our micronutrient test, may mean that you have higher susceptibility to toxic metals. So that's something else to consider. We see that zinc can play a role with our uh, immune response. In fact, we know that that's kind of one of the go-to supplements to help with the white blood cells, the army of defenders against cold and flu and virus. And this can even translate on an allergy approach where that regulation of immune system can reduce allergy reactivity um, seen in, in upper respiratory conditions like asthma and such. We can see an influence on our insulin storage and secretion. So zinc is required to synthesize or make insulin and it actually protects our cells of our pancreas from damage. So there's a big connection with diabetic risk when zinc levels get functionally deficient. Zinc plays a huge role with our sexual hormone health. In fact, um, it tends to uh, play a role with aromatization or um, the conversion of estrogen um, or testosterone into estrogen. So zinc, um, when too low, can often drive uh, male andropause or increased belly fat and drops in testosterone. And also we can see reduction in sperm count. So zinc is a really good fertility nutrient and estrogen and testosterone regulator. 
We also see influence on a myalgia type level. So all three nutrients today could drive those aching and tender points in the body with um, breakdown of muscle tissue and chronic fatigue like syndrome. And then zinc definitely is a star of the show for thyroid. It plays a huge role as one of the main activators of T4 into T3. So that deiodinization or that reduction from T4, that kind of building block into the active T3 requires zinc to remove that iodine molecule and activate the thyroid hormone, which then of course is going to play a role with optimized metabolism, body fat burn, and healthy weight maintenance. And again, that pairs with if you maintain your muscle mass, you're also going to maintain your base metabolic rate. So, so many processes in the body that require zinc. And again, that's, I think, a part of the reason we see it so commonly deficient is that it's just on super high demand. Mm -hmm, For Uh, sure. So let's get into some of the symptoms of deficiency and how we could catch this before it becomes a major issue. Yeah. So one that we see, especially in elderly. So like I mentioned, there's a connection with stomach acid, right? So it's interesting to note that individuals that are on long-term proton pump inhibitors like Nexium or other PPIs um, are going to have suppression of stomach acid and in sense, less ability to absorb and use zinc. And so we tend to see in the older populations that we can be um, getting later onset of anemia, usually from B12 or iron deficiency with that acid suppression. But we also see loss of taste and smell. And this can have a huge hindrance in you know, maintaining a healthy appetite. So that's a big symptom indicator, smell and taste changes with zinc. And then zinc, like I mentioned with immune system, also in the elderly population, super important with wound healing. So when we start to get like ulcers and bed sores, zinc can be used topically. In fact, I know with diaper rash and with Stella, um, I used a, um, I think it was the California baby brand. Um, generally speaking, I think we only had to use it three or four times, but on the teething times when she was having really acidic stools, it, we would first use the coconut oil. And then if we were getting any kind of like deep or wear and tear, I would use a little bit of uh, zinc supplementation topically. And that really helps to repair tissues. Um, so we can see a delayed wound healing essentially as another symptom of zinc deficiency. We can see uh, blood sugar imbalance and cholesterol imbalance because zinc helps to regulate our healthy cholesterol. And then, like I said, hypothyroid, weight gain, uh, insomnia, and infertility would be big ones. And then another one that I haven't mentioned yet is acne. Now, the acne element may be due to the hormonal regulation element, um, but acne and then another kind of in the beauty world with zinc is alopecia or uh, hair loss and weak nails. Uh, We tend to see skin, hair, and nail influence from zinc deficiency as well. Yes. And we talk a lot more about hair, skin, and nails in episode. It would have been right before this, right? Or two back. 83? Yeah. 82, I think maybe. I will link to the correct. I think it's 83. Yeah. Yep. Um, So we talk a lot more about that influence on um, those conditions and what else can be at play besides micronutrient deficiency, but definitely looking at micronutrients is a great place to start if dealing with any hair, skin, and nail stuff, as well as all of the other conditions we mentioned. For sure. And again, that's because, and that's why I don't recommend like 
preemptively supplementing with like just high dose biotin, right? Um, because a lot of times over the counter, that's what's going to be recommended for hair, skin, and nails. Um, and again, that can actually interfere with thyroid function. So you want to be mindful about what your body needs, because as you can see, there's such an intricate overlap of some of these symptoms and mechanisms. And that's where, you know, food as medicine can be a really good, pro, a really good proactive term and way of not getting into an excess and overlooking a true chronic deficiency, but testing is really important. And again, that's why I really like using the micronutrient test annually as a little bit of a way to recalibrate my clients' nutrient supplementation and, and myself as well. And another reason why just starting with a good quality bioavailable micronutrient supplement like our multi-defense, um, which has a really good amount of bioactive zinc in it. Um, it does not have L-asparginine and it does not have CoQ10. Um, but again, for those, you kind of want to be more specific and, and strategic, but definitely zinc, at least to offset that copper. Yes. Awesome. And then obviously when we run that panel, other than rehauling supplements, we also are going to give specific food goals like we've been talking about throughout this podcast of like three scoops, three to five scoops of grass-fed whey or, you know, asparagus three times a week, things like that to focus on the, the food from a repletion aspect. And then we give the nutrients that are needed to get above water and the ones that are the most linked to the symptoms we're actually experiencing expression. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about food sources of zinc. So I guess we have to move pumpkin seeds like down this list. They're There's okay. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So nuts and seeds are. So pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, and nuts. Um, dark chocolate is a really good one as well. Um, but best sources, going back to an interesting overlap with our CoQ10, is our oysters, our liver, our grass-fed beef. Um, so red meat tends to be the highest form and highest in the organs, again. Um, and oysters are a really fantastic option. Egg yolks are quite a good option as well. Um, and then even uh, using other red meat forms like lamb, bison. And then there is going to be a decent amount in, of zinc in pasture-raised pork, as well as even some in our uh, fish and poultry. Uh, the darker meat of the poultry is going to have highest amounts. So doing like the thighs versus the breast and then shellfish in general, beyond just the oysters is going to be really rich. So even doing like wild caught shrimp and things like that would be great for your zinc. And then uh, blackstrap molasses is uh, the last one I have on my list as far as aviary mineral um, stabilizing support. Um, and even just doing a teaspoon is only going to be five grams of carbs, but it could be a really great way to boost your mineral density and, um, you know, still keep you within even a ketogenic diet, as long as you're pairing that with fat. So like using a, a teaspoon of blackstrap molasses in a uh, protein shake using full fat coconut milk, uh, would work really nicely and uh, be really natural, sweet, especially if you're using like pumpkin seasoning. Yeah. Um, that really <laughs> rich, robust flavor profile. Yeah. And you could even mix in like an egg yolk if you wanted and make it like a really delicious treat that I want to eat right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I love any prescription for dark chocolate and oysters as well, yeah. for sure. Oysters, depending on the source, of course, and colder water better. Yes. Um, yep. Yeah. Not North, Northwest or East. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> and Canada are all ones that I would eat raw. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. 
Awesome. What about a couple more um, recipe ideas to focus on zinc repletion? I'm thinking, because you said chicken thighs, the mustard chicken thighs from the Naturally Nourished Cookbook are an yeah. awesome, awesome place to start with the chicken thighs. I think that'd be fantastic. And um, it's such a fan favorite. So I think that that'd be a great one to start with. And then also, um, you know, when you're doing that in the cast iron skillet, that's going to help with the mineral um, and definitely iron, um, but can also help with the, the zinc um, and adding acids to your food in general is going to also help with the mineral bioavailability and delivery. So ensuring that you're adding, you know, whether it's lemon or lime juice or Bragg's apple cider vinegar or a rice wine vinegar, um, you know, we use mustard in that dish in particular, but acids are going to help in that availability and absorption. Um, I have in my anti-anxiety diet book, uh, we use uh, pumpkin bar. So the pumpkin flesh actually also is a really good zinc source and vitamin A, which works hand in hand with uh, zinc. And um, another one would be our sirloin, that um, cherry reduction. Um, ah, I don't remember know. the exact name of it. No, it's just pan seared sirloin, 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 I think. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Cherry uh, glaze. Yep, and it's fantastic. Um, and that's in the Naturally Nourished Cookbook. So good. Okay, so we've covered our three nutrients for today. We've talked about asparagine or asparginine, however we want to say it, um, CoQ10 and zinc. We've also talked about mechanisms for testing and why we want to look beyond the serum at our white blood cell proliferation. Um, so hopefully you guys got some good information about symptoms to be wary of why we might be seeing deficiency of these nutrients in the first place, and then ideas for repletion in terms of foods to focus on and supplements if needed. So if you're already eating super clean and feeling pretty awesome, but just want to take your health to the next level, we will put a link in the show notes to the micronutrient test, which you can do in one of two ways. You can do it as a package A, which just includes a brief 15-minute review along with your test results, or you can do it as package B, which would be a comprehensive initial client session in which in the 90 minute appointment, we get all of your health history and we really strategize specific to your body and then go through those results and create an active plan for you to replete. Um, so either one is an option and both of those would be working with uh, Becky to optimize specific to your body and just check in on your health assessment and get an abundance-based list of foods to replete deficiencies and then re-strategize supplementation. Um, as always, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review with one or two sentences that always helps our spread of sharing food as medicine with the masses. And if you haven't gotten your tickets yet to KetoCon, check out the link in the show notes as well and make sure to purchase, come say hello and get inspired by the leaders in the fat-fueled movement. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.